Welcome back to our Wednesday night study. We are looking at Acts chapter 2, the event of Pentecost that happened. And specifically, what we are looking at is uh, the response to Peter's sermon at this event. And so we've been looking at this and looking at uh, some signs of salvation that we can see uh, in the response that the crowd had to Peter's sermon. And and the reason that we're doing this is because we recognize that the mission of the church, the mission that Christ gave his church in the world, was to go to the nations to make disciples, uh, to baptize them, and to teach them. And so we've asked the question, well, how can we know Uh, what point someone is at. Have have they become a disciple? Are they ready for baptism? Do they require further teaching? Or are they not yet a disciple and require further evangelism? How can we know uh, what is going on in a person's heart? Obviously, we are not God. We do not have uh, that sort of omniscient knowledge, and so we have to look to external factors. And so we're looking at the example here uh, in Acts 2 and the response that occurred to Peter's sermon to look for some of these signs that we might recognize that someone has come to faith. And so the first one we looked at in verse 37 was a conviction of sins and a repentance of those sins. And then in verse 41, uh, we looked at uh, the sign of obedience. If someone pursues obedience to Christ, particularly uh, in the act of baptism. And then in verse 42, which we dwelt in for several weeks now, uh, where it says they continued steadfastly. And so we asked, what are they continuing steadfastly in? Well, the first one was in the apostles' doctrine. And so we talked about uh, a love for the word of God. But then we also noted, uh, number four, that uh, they continued in fellowship with the church. And so we talked about the idea of koinonia and what that meant and a love for the church, for other believers, uh, and what koinonia looked like in the life of the church. And then last week, uh, we looked at at uh, the fact that they continued steadfastly in prayers. And so we looked at uh, a discovery of prayer as a sign of salvation. Uh, And so this evening, we're going to continue on uh, this week, and then next week will be the final week. But uh, this evening, the the topic that we're looking at here, uh, we're going to draw it from three different verses. So I actually want to read uh, beginning in verse 40 down through 47. Here's Acts 2, 40 through 47. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so the the mark or the sign of salvation that we are looking at this evening comes from verses 41, 46, and 47. And it is the mark of joy, Uh, joy or gladness 
in the Lord. Uh, We see this first in verse 41 uh, in the response as Peter exhorts uh, these people who have come and asked what they need to do. Uh, He's told them to repent and to be baptized. He exhorts them with other words, uh, preaching the gospel to them. And in verse 41, it says, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And we've already spoken a few weeks ago about love for the word of God being a sign of salvation, but I want to focus tonight on the gladness part of it. Um, They took joy in the preaching of the gospel. They took joy in hearing Peter's testimony uh, of Christ. Uh, They were uh, glad to hear it. They had a hungerness and an eagerness for it. Uh, They were willing to be taught, right? Peter is teaching them. He's exhorting them. He's testifying to them, uh, telling them what they need to do, and they are not offended that he's telling them these things. They're, they're not saying, well, who are you to say this to us? They're gladly receiving the instruction that he is giving them. And, and we need to fix this in our mind. These people are not unfamiliar with the scriptures, right? These are people who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Pentecost, the feast. These are people who are intimately familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, They know them. They have read them. They've heard them read in the synagogues. They've heard them taught by the Pharisees. So when Peter is preaching to them and preaching Christ to them from the scriptures, the scriptures themselves are not new to them. What is new to them is the fact that these scriptures are now fulfilled in Christ. And so they are receiving that word about Christ uh, and the fulfillment of the scriptures with joy. Now, there's an interesting sort of parallel that we see in Paul's letter to uh, the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians, uh, as Paul writes to the church there, he says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So the church in Thessalonica, the believers there, received the word that was preached to them with joy, with such joy that they became an example to other churches. Now it's interesting we can see from these two examples that a joy in receiving the word and hearing the gospel proclaimed uh, is a sign of salvation. But what's interesting that is pointed out specifically for us in 1 Thessalonians is that this is a joy that is independent of our circumstances. This joy is not dependent on having a good situation, right? The Thessalonians received the word within much affliction, but with joy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And so they have uh, joy in receiving the word despite their circumstances. And so you can think about this. I'm sure we've all heard stories. Uh, I have heard firsthand accounts uh, of believers in like the underground church in China who receive a copy of the scriptures that have been smuggled into them and the sheer joy that they have at having a copy of the Bible. That's the sort of joy we're talking about. They're overwhelmed with gladness and joy uh, to receive the word of God. Now what happens though is, is we see this sort of excitement in a new believer, right? Uh, they're overjoyed uh, in the word of God and in the preaching of the gospel. But then seasoned believers or people who have been a Christian for a long time, sometimes we have a tendency to sort of lose 
that joy and that excitement, um, we lose our excitement for the word. It becomes old hat to us. We slack off in our, our daily reading of it, uh, our devotions. Um, we're over, overly familiar with it, perhaps. We've read it multiple times, and so we've lost our excitement about it. One of the things that we need to be careful of uh, as believers is that when someone we know comes to faith and they start experiencing this sort of joy in the word that we uh, don't inadvertently discourage them by our response to their joy. Uh, I think about one instance where uh, Lauren and I were on, we were on a mission trip in Poland uh, with uh, some other people and, and a handful of uh, teenagers that had, had gone there with us, uh, some of which were from uh, a military base in Germany, and so we didn't really know them. Uh, and, but every morning, we, we had everybody that was there on the mission trip doing you know, their daily morning devotions and Bible reading and prayer before we gathered, and then we would kind of talk about what, what people were learning in the Bible and, and what they were praying about. And one of the boys that was there, and I don't know how old he was at the time, probably 14 maybe, he was pretty young, um, I remember the sheer joy and excitement uh, on his face as he shared with us a Bible verse that he had discovered. It was John 3.16. We're all very familiar with that, but for him it was brand new and it was exciting. And it would be really easy for us who are familiar with that just to kind of oh-ho-hum that because we've heard it so many times and it's been used so widely. But for him, it was, there was just this joy that he had found this exciting verse. And so we have to be careful that we don't discourage people by not joining them in that excitement. For them, it is new and it is fresh and exciting to find a verse like that. Um, we should learn to share in their joy and to rejoice with them uh, when they discover these things. And honestly, we should be inspired by the joy of a new Christian as they're discovering these things. It should stir us up to continue to add to our faith knowledge and to continue to be excited uh, about these things. The second uh, instance we see of joy or gladness here is down in verse 46, where it says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So they're, they're eating their food. Well, again, just like they had the scriptures, they knew the scriptures, but now they're finding this new joy in them as they see Christ in the scriptures. They had food before this, right? It's not like they had never eaten before. But now they're finding joy. They're glad to receive their food. They were, if they were practicing Jews or even proselytes to the Jewish religion, they were saying prayers over their meals. The scripture commands them to do that in the Old Testament. So this is not new to them to receive their food with thankfulness because that would be the prescribed prayers that they would pray over them. But there's a renewed joy now in the simple things. They're receiving their food with gladness. It's like a new believer, just everything seems like a cause for excitement and joy in the Lord, even these new things uh, that they are excited about and uh, thanking God for in a new way. And again, you know, it's interesting, we flip over to Romans 14 and verse 17, Paul tells us, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
right? So the kingdom of God really doesn't consist of eating. And in this context, he's talking about some people having a difficulty with certain meats and whatnot. But he's saying the kingdom of God has to do with joy, not arguing over what food we're eating. But we can see here uh, the example of these believers in Acts 2 are receiving whatever food it is they have with joy and thankfulness to God. You know, we can be like the Jews, perhaps, at times, uh, saying our prayers over our meals, uh, thanking God for them, but kind of in a lackluster way, without a lot of joy in our hearts as we do so. Uh, again, it's kind of like we're just going through the motions. This is something we do. We pray over our meals, but you know, do we stop and think about the fact that we have food on the table? This is a blessing from God, something for us to be thankful for and joyful about uh, that God has created all these wonderful tastes and aromas uh, for us to partake in, that he has provided this food for us. Uh, so we can learn, again, from new believers to be joyful in these simple things. But then in verse 47, we really find the key phrase here. It says, not only did they eat their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. They're, they're praising God, and, and the word here means to celebrate. They're celebrating God. Uh, this is a word that is not used often in the scriptures. It's only used a handful of times in the New Testament, and to give us an idea of what it means, it's used twice in chapter 3. And chapter 3 uh, begins with this story of Peter and John going up to the temple to pray and encountering uh, a man who is lame. And then uh, they heal him, right? He, he, he is begging for money, and they don't give him any money, but instead uh, they tell him to rise up and walk. And then we see in verse 7, it says, And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So the, the lame man is healed. He's able to stand up on his own two feet. And look at his response in verses 8 and 9. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. He's celebrating God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. This is the picture here. He's celebrating. He's leaping with joy uh, in what God has done in his life. Uh, and new believers are often like that, right? They're just, they can't contain themselves. They're so joyful uh, in the Lord. Um, notice what it says here in verses 8 and 9, what he did. Not only is he leaping with joy and celebrating, but he entered the temple with them. Right? He was outside begging, had no intention necessarily of going into the temple for prayer at that moment, but he's healed, and so he's, he's skipping and jumping, he's excited, and he goes into the temple, the place of worship, and he goes with them, with other believers, joining the congregation that is going in to praise and celebrate. He's walking, he's leaping, he's praising, he just can't contain himself. Uh, and so we often see new believers with the same sort of excitement and zeal uh, for uh, worship, for evangelism. Um, you know, I, I remember coming to faith at a very young age when I was about six, and I remember going to a sleepover at a friend's house shortly after that and taking my Bible with me and trying to evangelize him. I didn't know what I was doing, 
as like a six or seven-year-old at the time, but I took my Bible to a sleepover and was trying to, to show this friend of mine why I was so excited about this. And that's the sort of joy that we often see in new believers. In fact, sometimes they're, they're so enthusiastic that it kind of makes us a little uncomfortable because they're so enthusiastic. In fact, when we were in Boston, one of our friends kind of coined this term. I'm assuming they coined it and didn't get it from somewhere else. But they were talking about someone who was in that condition. They had come to faith. They were super excited about the Lord. And they said, oh, yeah, he's oversaved. He's oversaved. He's just he's so excited. It's like he can't contain himself, you know. Um, it, but that's, that's what often happens with new believers. And, and often we kind of lose that enthusiasm over time, right? We lose that joy. Um, our worship and our, our experience of praising God, uh, like our mealtime prayers, can become going through the motions, kind of ho-hum. Uh, we lose our, our zeal for evangelism. We lose our desire and our joy in worship. And so all of this leads me to ask three questions. Why do new believers have such joy? And secondly, why and how do we lose that joy over time? And then thirdly, what can we do to regain that joy? And so we're going to look at some Bible passages, but I think the first thing we need to do is define what is joy. What are we talking about here? That these new believers have joy. We've kind of seen it. There, there's an eagerness for the word. There's a, a thankfulness and a gladness for God's blessings. And there's a celebrating of God in worship. But how would we actually define it? Well, here's the, the Webster's Dictionary definition of joy. It defines it as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. So Webster's is saying uh, that if you are experiencing something good, it stirs up this emotion we call joy. Or if you have the, the hope of experiencing something good or getting the thing that you desire, it stirs up joy. Is that a good definition? Well, Thomas Watson, one of the uh, Westminster divines, he defined joy this way. He said, spiritual joy is a sweet and delightful passion arising from the apprehension and feeling of some good whereby the soul is supported under present trouble and fenced against future fear. Now what's interesting about his definition is that it's actually very similar to the Webster's definition with uh, one pretty drastic difference. He calls it a sweet and delightful passion. Now passion is just the older way of saying emotion. Right? So he's calling it an emotion, just like Webster's did. He says, though, that it is a sweet and delightful type of emotion or passion, right? Because we can have evil passions, evil emotions, hate, anger, hatred, uh, you know, different things like this. So it's a, it's a sweet and delightful passion. But notice what he skips over. He skips over that it is evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune. He doesn't mention that at all. And instead, he says that it is, um, arises from the apprehension, which is the same thing that Webster said, the prospect, the, the, the hope or expectation of, they said, possessing what one desires. He says the apprehension of some good. And then he says that it 
supports the soul in present trouble and fences or guards the soul from future fear. So what is the good, right? It's some good that we're desiring that is giving rise to this joy. And he says that it supports us in present trouble. So he omits the well-being, success, or good fortune and says, rather, we're going to have present trouble, but the joy supports us through that trouble and guards us against future fear. So if we were kind of combine those two definitions together, we might say that spiritual joy is the good emotion evoked by our certain expectation of future good which sustains us through the troubles of this life and guards us against worry and fear. And what are these present troubles that it sustains us through? Well, the present troubles of living in a fallen world, sin, suffering, persecution, death, right? We all experience these things uh, and they are troubles that trouble our soul. And, and so he says that it, it, this joy that we have from our expectation of a future good supports us in this present trouble. Now, I love the Puritans because sometimes they just have a certain way of saying things. And he says that it supports our soul in this way. He says it carries the heart above them, that is the present troubles, as oil swims above the water. What a great picture. You think about water and the waves representing the troubles and oil that just rides on top of the water, right? The water's still there. The troubles are still there. They didn't go away. But the joy keeps us afloat. It keeps our our head above water. But what is the good that he says that we are apprehending or that we have some prospect of possessing? Well, let's turn to 2 Corinthians. And this is a passage we actually looked at briefly uh, this past Sunday in the sermon. But uh, here... Remember, Paul was taking a collection for the the saints in Judea who are suffering uh, from persecution and from famine. And he's collecting uh, these contributions from the churches. And so he tells the church in Corinth about the contributions made uh, by other churches. And so he says in chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So he's telling the Corinthians, about the grace of God at work in the Macedonians. He says in verse 2 that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. So whatever this good is that is producing joy in the Macedonians, they have an abundance of it, but it's coming in the midst of a great trial of affliction and deep poverty. So again, this joy is something that is not uh, bound to our circumstances. This joy is independent of our circumstances. They have an abundance of joy in what sound like pretty miserable circumstances. A great trial of affliction and deep poverty. And so what I would uh, suggest to you is that the key to Christian joy is its source the source of Christian joy. Uh, We can know joy in difficult circumstances because the good that brings us our joy is God himself. Our joy is in God himself. And we're going to look at some passages uh, that make this point. We're going to turn back 
to Psalms and kind of work our way forward. And there are so many of these that I kind of had to pick and choose. But in Psalm chapter 40, in Psalm 40, uh, the psalmist is writing and he says this in verse 16. He says, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. So the psalmist is saying that those who who love God's salvation and who seek after God uh, would be rejoice and find joy in God, in the God of our salvation. If we flip over now to Psalm 137, this is one of the difficult psalms, right? This is the psalm where uh, they're in captivity in Babylon. And this is one of the psalms we don't read often because of, you know, it ends with the whole thing about dashing the little ones against the rocks. But notice what it says here in Psalm 137, uh, verse 6. They, they've, they've asked them to sing a song of Zion. And, and they're in captivity in Babylon. And it says in verse 4, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Now see, what happened is Babylon had become their address, but Jerusalem was still their home. Even though they were living in Babylon in exile, their heart was still in Jerusalem the city of God, the city where the temple was, where the worship of God happened in the temple. That's where their heart was. And and he wanted to exalt that city above his chief joy. Well, if we think about what that means for us and put it in context of what Paul tells us in Philippians, where he tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem is our home, and that is where our heart should be as well. And so we should set our greatest joy on that city and what it represents. What does it represent for us? It represents the presence of God. It represents being with him. That's what the temple in Jerusalem represented, the presence of God with his people. And so our greatest joy should be that hope that we have for the future of actually being in the presence of God, of actually being together with him, in fellowship with him, which is the point of our salvation, right? That we are together with God, that our relationship to our creator is restored. In Isaiah chapter 12, Verse 3, it says, Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy we draw water from the wells of salvation. Uh, We should find joy in salvation and what it means for us, the restoration of fellowship with our Creator. Think about the fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God in the garden before they sinned. What our salvation represents is 
the forgiveness of our sins, but much more than that. It represents the restoration of that fellowship, of our adoption as sons and daughters of God, and of our being brought to him, which is what Peter says that Christ does in our salvation, that he might bring us to God. That's the point. One more reference from the Old Testament in Habakkuk. Again, this makes the point that this sort of joy that we find in God is not tied to our circumstances. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning of verse 17. This is the end of the book. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the, and the yields, fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Even though the circumstances are bad, there's no harvest, there's no flocks, everything has gone wrong, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and joy in the God of my salvation. So our joy is in God, independent of our circumstances. Now back to Paul's letter to the Philippians once again. What does he tell us here? This is a passage we're familiar with, but Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice always in good circumstances or bad circumstances. We are to rejoice in the Lord. Now, this presents a difficulty for us, though, as we think about this sort of joy in the Lord uh, as a mark or a sign of salvation. Because Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, makes the point for us when he tells the parable of the seed and the sower. He makes a point of saying um, that the one who received the seed on stony places, that is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So here is someone who did not find joy uh, independent of their circumstances. They received the word, the preaching of the word with joy, but then when persecution came, when the circumstances went wrong, they proved themselves not to actually have solid roots, right? Their joy was really tied to their circumstances. As long as it looked like uh, the gospel wasn't going to make my circumstances difficult, then it's good news. I've just recently been rereading uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and one of the characters that Pilgrim encounters along the way um, is happy about the gospel, happy about uh, you know, the message of Christ, as long as religion is in his silver slippers. In other words, as long as everything is okay, as long as there's no persecution that comes with it, then he's happy and joyful in it. But he's not so fond of it. Uh, when he's not, when religion is not in his silver slippers, when he's, when, when you have to hold to Christ in the face of persecution or when everybody's not happy about it, well, then he doesn't want anything to do with it, right? So the sort of joy we're talking about is a joy in the Lord that exists even when our circumstances are outwardly uh, not good. Now, in the same chapter, in Matthew 13 and verse 44, There's another small parable, one verse. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So here, 
is a joy in the gospel that is willing to part with everything else for the sake of the kingdom. This is a joy uh, that, that finds joy in knowing Christ and in being known by him uh, and is willing to part with everything else for the sake of knowing him. Now, interestingly, we've said um, that we're to have this sort of joy even when our circumstances don't lend themselves to joy. But if we remember the definition that Webster's gave us was that joy could be an emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune. Well, shouldn't we joy in those circumstances? Well, in Luke chapter 10, we have an interesting uh, little episode that occurs. Uh, Jesus sends 70 disciples out. Remember this? And it says then in verse 17, Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Here are good circumstances. Here is what Webster's defines as success. They went out, they did what Jesus told them to. Even the demons were subject to them. And Jesus says that success is not a cause for joy. Your cause for joy is that your name is written in heaven, in the Lamb's book of life. Your cause for joy is in salvation. It's in the, the prospect of the, the apprehension of the future joy of being in his presence, of knowing God. We're to find our deepest joy in God himself and the salvation that he provides in Christ, which is our return to right fellowship with God. Now, new believers are full of joy because they've just found that salvation, right? They've just been saved. They've just experienced that. And so they're full of joy. So how then do we end up losing that joy? And why do we lose that joy? Well, I would argue that the primary reason that we lose that joy is when we fix our affections on something other than Christ. He is to be our chief joy, just like it said in Psalm 137. If I don't set Jerusalem above my chief joy, Christ is to be set above our chief joy. He is to be our greatest joy. And when we fix our affections on something other than him, what have we done? We've created an idol. And we've sinned. The greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. That means that he is our chief joy. This is the reason the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins saying, what is the chief end of man? Part of the answer is, is that it's to enjoy God forever. Right? So we lose our joy when we sin, when we make other things uh, our chief affection. Let's turn back to Psalm 51. And we're going to read a few verses out of this. This is the psalm that David writes as a prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. Now you remember he, he commits this sin which involves adultery and murder and lying. Uh, and then he is confronted by the prophet. And then he writes this psalm of repentance. Notice what he says in verses 1 through 6. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden parts. You will make me to know wisdom. You know, one of the things that we sometimes forget, and Lauren pointed this out to me earlier this week, is that when we think about like the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the law, and the first table of the law has to do with our relationship to God, and the second table has to do with our relationship to other Christians, other people, right? And so we think, well, do not steal, do not murder, uh, honor your parents, these, these sorts of commands. But when we break those commands, not only have we done wrong to another person, but we have sinned against God. David committed adultery, murder, and lied, and yet he says, against you and you only have I sinned. His offense against God was so great that by comparison, his offense against people was as nothing. He had made something else ultimate in his life. He had raised something else up to his chief joy. He was enjoying the, the privileges of being king, staying home from the war, taking the pretty woman that he saw, doing away with her husband, and trying to cover the whole thing up. And so what happens is he comes to repentance to confess his sin. What did Peter tell the people there at Pentecost when they said, what, what do we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Martin Luther, in his 95 Theses, in his very first Theses, said that the entire life of the Christian is a life of repentance. So how do we renew our joy when we lose it? We, we renew it by re renewing our repentance again. Look at verses 7 through 13 now as David continues his prayer. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Peter here, er, David, I'm sorry, is praying for uh, a clear conscience before God. He's praying for uh, purity of heart, right? Not just the forgiveness for his sins, right? Not just purity for his hands, but purity for his heart, for the fact that he made something else his chief joy rather than God. And he's asking God to restore the joy of God's salvation, to put him back in that place where a new believer is, where they have this joy that comes from confession and repentance. And then, he says, he'll again have this zeal that we often see in new believers to, to tell other people, to teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. A renewal of our repentance reminds us of God's great grace in Christ by which he not only forgives our sins, but restores to us the joy of our salvation, the hope of our future presence with him. Sin separates us from God, and the sooner that it is repented of, the sooner our joy is restored. 
In Galatians 5, verse 22, we're told by Paul that the fruit of the Spirit consists of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and he goes on. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? It, it's, it's something that we experience when the Spirit of God is at work in our lives, growing us and maturing us. It grows in those who prune the desires of the flesh because he goes on and says that a, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We've crucified the flesh. We've put to death those old desires, those old passions, and instead we have made God our desire and our passion. And so joy grows in us by the work of the Spirit. How are we to restore our joy? Well, by spending time with God in His Word, in prayer, repenting, seeking the Lord's face again, that our joy in His salvation might be renewed. Now, the, the last thing that I would say in regards to this is that, you know, we've read Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And we're familiar with this and we'll even shout it like an anthem. But do we stop and think that's not a suggestion? It's a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's an instruction. R.C. Sproul said this, Based on the biblical teaching, I would go so far as to say that it is the Christian's duty, his moral obligation, to be joyful. This is our command from God, to rejoice, to be joyful in the Lord always. We're not commanded to seek joy in other things. We're not even commanded to seek joy in the good things that God gives us, but to seek joy in God himself. And as Thomas Watson said, in that that apprehension that we have of the good that comes of our being ushered into his presence. You know, when, when Jesus uh, is speaking in the Gospels and he talks about those who are received at, at the final judgment and have actually done what they were supposed to, and he tells them what? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Our true joy will, will be consummated and fulfilled when we are actually in his presence. But we have a foretaste of that now that keeps us above water, that keeps us above uh, the sins and the sorrows of this life, keeps us afloat as we look forward to that day where we are reunited with him fully. And new believers have that because they've just experienced repentance and salvation. And that is something that even us more seasoned believers should seek to renew uh, and to join in the joy of new believers in celebrating the salvation of God by leaping and shouting and praising him with all our hearts and minds. Let's close in a word of prayer.